If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 5 as we continue in our series in the beginning. And uh, we are picking it up after the fall and then the banishment of Cain after he murdered his brother Abel. And uh, I've got you turning to chapter 5, but actually I want you to look at a couple of verses just before chapter 5 to sort of pick up the context of what takes place after this horrific incident whereby Cain killed his brother and then we see his evil lineage sort of unpacked before us at the end of chapter 4. But it tells us in verse 25, here's the reading of the text. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also, uh, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This is going back to Genesis 1 and 2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and Named them man, actually the Hebrew word Adam, but that's just the generic word here, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, watch this, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years... He fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And from Enosh, we have Kenan, and from Kenan, we have Mahalel, and from Mahalel, we have Jared, all the way down to Enoch in verse 21. I want you to look, go there where it says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. On the same high school canoe trip that I referred to Last week, we were going along the banks of the Crow Wing River in northern Minnesota on this, in the very same year, and there was, a, there was a guy in this group of high schoolers, he was a wrestler, and he found out that I was a wrestler years earlier, and he wanted to challenge me to a wrestling match. So I looked at him, and I sort of sized him up, and I thought, I think I could take him. But he was bigger than me. And so the taunting went on every day. When are we going to wrestle? When are we going to wrestle? So on day three, we, there was a, uh, the leader had a big tug of war. And it's real sandy along the beaches there. And so we, we had the 60-foot rope. And, you know, we had teams going back and forth like a, with a, you know, all this tug of war. And the thought occurred to me. So I said to this guy who had been taunting me, I said, I'll take you on. In a match, one-on-one -on -one of tug-of-war. You versus me, uno per uno. Come on, let's do it. 
He goes, you're on. And except I talked to the other kids, and they all circled around. Remember, it's a 60-foot rope. They circled around us as we grabbed the rope. And unbeknownst to him was on the other side of the rope where all the kids were, I had three big guys holding the other side of the rope. So as I sort of pulled, I just started just, just pulling like this, and inexorably, he's just going toward me. He's kicking up sand left and right. I just pulled him easily across the line. He was, he, he was incredulous. He couldn't believe it. He said, you, you. I said, you want me to do it again? <laughs> yeah, we did it again. Again, I grabbed the rope, just pulled back. He just kicking dirt all over the place. I pulled him. Around. He was just beside himself. And I said, you want to do it? He didn't want to do it a third time. But by then, the, the parting of the sea took place, and I let him see the three guys that were in the back pulling away. Now, make no mistake, there was a contest going on here. But it was fixed, for sure. The Bible talks about the fall of man when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And when God started levying these curses out, he told Adam and Eve in chapter 3, verse 15, that there would be a conflict, an ongoing tug of war, so to speak, between the, the followers of God and the followers of Satan. And that tug of war goes on to the present hour. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Remember that? So this cosmic tug of war between God, the people of God, and the people of Satan have been going on. And there's a, there's a theology called dualism, which we do not ascribe to. It's, it has various forms. But basically, it, it depicts God and Satan locking horns and going back and forth, and they're fighting over the destiny of your soul and mine and the events of this world. And the, and the outcome is not certain. And sometimes, when we look at our lives and we look at the lives of our kids and we look at the lives and the events that are going on in this world, we kind of wonder, don't we? But if we know God and we know his word, we know better, don't we? Or at least we should. And so when war takes place and sorrow and death and heartache and loss and it tempts to bring us down, we remember that God is still at the helm. He's still in control. And Nebuchadnezzar, after he got the beat down in Daniel chapter 4, personally testified of it. Here's this great king of the world, humanly speaking. He testified these words in Daniel 4.35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, that is God, does according to his will in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stop his hand or say unto him, What are you doing? The psalmist put it like this in Psalm 29, verse 10. He said, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. And what more cataclysmic time was there ever in this world? But where was God? On his throne. The Lord sits as king forever. Do you believe that? That's God. He's in charge. But as you read Genesis chapter 5 and see this genealogy sort of unpack itself, you see a lot of upheaval that's been going on, and you see a familiar phrase over and over and over again, and eight times to be exact, and he died, and he died, and he died. Thus, after Adam sins, we have the fulfillment of what Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, wherefore by one man, that's Adam, sin came into the world, so death 
passed upon all men, for all sinned in Adam. And with the death of Abel, his blood cried out from the ground, figuratively speaking. Remember that when God confronted Cain? We saw that a week ago. Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Remember that? But God heard that cry, so to speak, and he would give to Adam and Eve another son, namely Seth. One that would restart a long line of godly people who would not call out from the ground, but they would call up unto the Lord. And so the inclusion of Enosh, if you look at the last verse in, in chapter 4, Seth also had a son, he uh, was born a son and named him Enosh. The, the inclusion of Enosh is so that you and I can see that Seth did not alone call upon the Lord. His son did. God is trying to show us that a godly line was beginning to be perpetuated. That's what he's saying here. And, and so in other words, the line, the godly line didn't, didn't just start with Seth, it was revived, so to speak. And whenever God revives his people, there are two things. Now listen to this. There are two things that will always happen. Men will call upon the Lord, and men will walk with the Lord. Two things that will always happen. Men will call upon the Lord, and they will walk with the Lord. But calling, Now listen to this. Calling on the Lord and walking with Him involves much more than the sentimental things that come to your mind when you think of people who call on Jesus and walk with Him. And you'll see that in this passage today. So when God revives His people... There are two things I want you to catch this morning. They call on him as true worshipers. And they walk with him as true followers. So let's just look at these and unpack them from the text. First, when God revives his people, and that's what we want here. That's what you want in your life. That's what I want in my life. That's what we want in this world, in the spheres in which we are impacting. When God revives his people... The first thing I want you to note is they call upon him as true worshipers. Look at the text again. I'll put it up there for you. At that time, people began to call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord meant to worship toward him, to live for him, to pray to him. In fact, the Hebrew phrase to call literally means to proclaim. But it also means to cry. It conveys the idea of a cry of desperation. And no one will ever come to know God. No one will ever be saved unless there is a desperate cry from your heart. Things must have looked pretty dreadful at this point in the saga. Wouldn't you agree? After Abel's murder... And Cain's expulsion, banishment from the land. Think about this. Adam and Eve didn't just lose one son. They lost two. So while Cain went out to make a name for himself, as the latter part of chapter 4 tells us, God raised up a people who would make a name for him. The godly line would carry on. It always has. Jesus promised he would build his church. He did, he does, he will. 
And he does it by penetrating a fallen world with people who are fallen. That would be you and me. Because from this point, and you can see from chapter 5 and verse 3, you and I don't just bear the image of God. We do have the imago Deo, the image of God, but we also have the image of man. We have the image of Adam. In fact, if you look at chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, watch this, in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So what you have here is a double image. You've got the image of God. James 2.9 says we still bear the image of God. But we also have the image of man. There is a sinfulness about it. This is what God has to penetrate when he revives a people. And it's probably worth noting and reminding each and every one of us that while we can and we do and we surely will transmit our sin to our children we do not transmit our salvation not automatically anyway why because our kids bear the negative side of our likeness right and so when my boys were off the rails i was thinking what is going on i thought they're just they're just like i was hmm and so i cry out to god i cried out to god i still cry out to god but For him to change them, to break the chain. And praise God, he answered that prayer. Only God can do that. That's the point. We can provide the the sphere. We can provide the home environment. We can provide a spiritual culture. We can speak truth. The truth that sets them free. Hallelujah. But only God can save them. And we have to remember that. We pray. We trust And like Enosh, we call upon the Lord. We cry this cry of desperation, not only on our own behalf, but on behalf of our children. Amen? And many of you have children that are breaking your hearts right now. And we want you to know that we join you in calling upon the Lord. And I will do that at the end of the service. I will call upon God on behalf of your children. When I moved to Ankeny in the early 80s, actually 1984, I came here as a student in Bible college, working at UPS, going to church right here, and uh, met a couple. They lived in our area, worked at UPS with me, led him to Christ. His name was Nick and Sandy, and Nick and Sandy came to know Jesus as their Savior. We started a disciple and had a wonderful time. Well, by and by, he wanted to try his hand at farming, so he moved up north. And uh, simultaneous to him moving up north, there was this little country church up north that was dying. Just a handful of people were left. They still got together and worshipped every Sunday. And on one Sunday evening, one of the older men in the church stood up. They were having a little testimony time between 10 or 15 of them. And this very realistic, not so much faith-oriented, but definitely a realistic guy stood up and said, Come on, folks, who are we fooling? We're dying. Let's just admit it. Let's just talk to God about the fact that we're dying. That's what they did. The very next week, Nick and his wife walked through the doors of that little church. And six months later, my wife and I and our little family would walk through the doors of that church, and we'd stay there for a dozen years. And we watched God do something very special. 
He began to grow that little church. People came to know Jesus. Now, it was a church full of misfits. I mean, that's just the kind of people that were coming to Jesus. But it was full of them. And one of them, one of them, a guy by the name of Don Ford. I don't know if you know any Dons. Some of you do. Don was, I mean, if you look up the word dysfunctional, his picture is right next to it, I guarantee you. I mean, this guy tried to kill his wife and kid. No joke. Threw gasoline on the, on the trailer that they lived in. Tried to kill him. And, last, and the law didn't really take kindly to that, so he's thrown into jail. Somewhere in there we found him, we discovered him, had the joy of leading him to Christ. Then he tried to kill himself. I mean, it was just absolutely, oh, mind-boggling to have to deal with Don. But those are the kind of people that God was saving and changing little by little through all the frustration. A dozen years later, I came here to Sailorville Church, and that church went on and continued to thrive for the next decade or so. But about a decade ago, not so much. Things happened. It went sideways. People started leaving. Three-fourths of the church over a period of six years took off for other churches. And they were down to a small group of people again. But just the other day, the pastor showed up to see me. And guess who he brought with him? Don Ford. 26 years later. Loving God calling upon the Lord, walking with Jesus, encouraging his pastor. And when I spent some time with them and when we parted company, the thought that came to my mind was, Jesus will build his church. He did, he does, and he will. And he does it through people calling upon him. In the name of the Lord, like Seth and Enosh did. And this, by the way, carries into the New Testament where Paul says in Romans chapter 3, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? They'll be saved. This is a call of desperation. This is a cry of need. You recognize your sin. You believe Christ died and rose again for you. He is your only means of salvation. That's how God brings about revival. And Jesus said, I want true worshipers. And those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth, John 4. So he's seeking true worshipers. And God revives his people when they call upon him as true worshipers. Have you done that? Here's the other thing I want to point out. When God revives his people... They walk with him as true followers. This is what I mean when I say calling upon the Lord and walking with the Lord isn't this sentimental thing that some of you may have in your mind. And you're really going to see it with Enoch here. And I want you to scoot down to verse 22 in this passage of Scripture. But well, even before you get there, I mean, even before you get to verse 22, you, you, you have to be struck by all the longevity here, right? That's the first thing we see when we read this passage. People live in 900 years. What's that all about? Methuselah, longest recorded person to ever live, 969 years, just 31 years shy of 1,000 years. What's with that? One writer called this an amazing, there was an amazing virility amongst the men. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, Seth's 105 years old, and when he gives birth to Enosh, if you look at the last verse in the, in the chapter, you've got, you've got Noah 
when he's 500 years old, he gives birth to Shem and Ham and Japheth. 500 years old. I mean, I heard the other day that Dennis Rodman's dad had 29 kids. Apparently, that was pretty normal here. And why the long lifespans? We're not told. Certainly, that would have allowed for a lot of enormous population. Some, some writers think there was up to 7 billion people living before the flood. There's no way of proving that. Some think that all of this genealogy is sort of compressed. In other words, it's not exact. You've got, there's enough vagueness in the Hebrew when, they, when it talks about being fathered that might refer to many others, and you've got them having sons and daughters. So it might not be exact, but it certainly looks like a fairly straightforward lineage from Adam to Noah, to me at least, and to many others I might add. And if you add it all up, it comes to 1,652 years. And there's a correlating account, if you want to read it for yourself, in Luke's Gospel, where you have Jesus' genealogy going backwards, and you've got all of these names that are mentioned. And there doesn't seem to be any gaps So if this indeed is a continuous, uninterrupted line, then we have some fascinating overlaps. I mean mean flat-out fascinating overlaps. If this is a continuous, uninterrupted line, Adam would have been alive for a couple hundred years at the time of Methuselah. You might say, that's interesting. Let me make it even more interesting. Methuselah lived for hundreds of years into Noah's life. And watch this, Shem, the son of Noah, listen to this, he outlived Abraham by 35 years. If all that's true, then Abraham, listen to this, Abraham would have heard a first-hand account of life before and after the flood. And that might be the very reason why we have these long lives. In fact, Shem would have lived into Jacob and Esau's life. He would have met them, possibly. But here's the point. Those incredibly long lives, watch this, it would have provided a conduit, a trans, an ability to transmit truth from one generation to another. It's not like they heard the stories of creation and the flood, you know, umpteen generations apart, but they were talking to the very people who experienced it. The Bible wasn't complete, it wasn't even started, that is the, 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 code, the codifying of it by then. So this is fascinating. And of course today we're told the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, these give to faithful men. Commit to faithful men who can teach others as well, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. We still transmit truth orally, do we not? And through our lives. But this is the ultimate truth, amen? This is the infallible truth that we hold on to. But now back to the point that God revives his people when they walk with him as true followers. Enoch, now I'll go to verse 22. Here's Enoch. His name means dedicated, and he certainly was. What? Not once, but twice, We're told that he walked with God, and then at the spry young age of 365, God took him. Enoch, 
walked with God. In chapter 4, you have the evil Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain. And then you have godly Enoch, descendant of Abel. And they literally parallel one another in generations. Looks like six generations from Cain and from Abel. Seven, both from Adam. The parallel is striking. And so the point is there's this, there's this tug of war going on and sort of in parallel lines. You've got an ungodly line. You've got a godly line. The tug of war goes on right down to the present hour. But here's what I want you to focus on. Enoch walked with God. What did that look like? What did that look like? By the way, only Enoch and Noah are ever told, were ever told in the Bible, only Enoch and Noah walked with God. We're, there are people who are described as having walked after the Lord or walked before the Lord, but only Enoch and Noah, are we told, walked with God. And if you're thinking that what it means to walk with God is to have this sweet, uh, sort of gentle... Uh, Casper, milk toast, kind of cool way. You can almost see the halo around him kind of way. Just, just stop thinking like that. Stop, you're wrong. In fact, in fact, <clears throat> I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but Enoch walked with God. To walk with God, it carried the idea of intensity. There was an, it does mean side by side. And when you two, see two people walking side by side, it's almost hard to see who's leading who, right? That talks about intimacy. That talks, it speaks of intensity. It speaks of, of boldness even. In fact, one writer put it like this. The expression walk with God became a common description of the life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord as if to say that walking with the Lord was a step above mere living, unquote. So in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says in verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who would come to God must believe that, what? He is, that he exists, and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But you ought to know that in Hebrews 11 verse 6, that comes on the heels of a description of none other than Enoch. Because look at verse 5. Look at what verse 5 says. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken up, he was commended, watch this, as having what? Please God. It's in this context where it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. You got to believe that he is. You got to believe that he's a reward of those who diligently seek him. I.e., like Enoch. He was a fervent follower of, of Christ. And yes, Jesus was around those days there. But you say, well, that's okay. I can get the intimacy part and the passion. But I want you to notice the way Jude refers to Enoch. Listen to these words in Jude chapter, or you pick any chapter you want, verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, watch this, this is Enoch preaching. 
Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch walked with God, and as such, he was not just a preacher. He was a thundering preacher, pointing out sinners. Four times, we're told, he confronted the ungodly. And not only that, he talked about the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the text is saying. He called it out. He called out the fact he's going to execute judgment when he comes back. This is what Jesus is going to do. We just sang about Jesus' coming. And oh, how we look forward to it, amen? But we don't often sing about the fact that when he comes back, he's going to put a beat down on those who reject him. And that's what the Bible says. The time of mercy is over by then. And so when you think about what it means to walk with God and, you, and what comes to your mind is this just warm feeling, little tingly feeling, you know, walking with Jesus. Maybe think otherwise. There's intensity as well as intimacy. And when God revives his people, they call upon him as true worshipers and they walk with him as true followers. The pastor's meeting just a week ago, we got into the topic of discipleship and we were talking about how how discipleship would really occur in our church and talking about connecting dots and doing all this and having programs and all all this stuff being good. But one of the guys, one of the pastors said, I think our lives should cause people to be drawn to us. And I was arrested by the comment because he was right. And then my next thought was, are people drawn to me? Are people drawn to you? Are they drawn to you? Here's a better question. Is God drawn to you? The psalmist Put it like this, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself the one who's godly, him who's godly, and he'll hear me when I call on him. Is he hearing you? Is he drawn to you? There's a cute story, perhaps you've heard it, that one day God and Enoch took a walk, and they walked, and they talked, and they talked, and they walked, and on they went, and the sun was setting. Enoch, Enoch said, oh my goodness, look what time it is. I need, to, I need to get back home. And God responded, I think we're closer to my home than yours. Why don't you come with me? And he took him. Will he take you? Will he take you? Someday, God is going to call for you. Every one of us are going to get the call. The only question is, Will you have called upon him before he comes calling for you? And you do that with this cry of desperation from your heart, realizing your church and your religion and your baptism and a half a dozen other things aren't going to deliver you. Only Jesus can do that. You humble your heart and you call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, That at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow someday. You might as well bow now. Amen? Bow before him with your heart. And then those of you who know Jesus, are you walking with him? 
not just with intimacy, but with intensity, boldness for his glory. And God revives his people. They call upon him as true worshipers, and they walk with him as true followers of Jesus Christ. Are you? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning that we can open up your word, look into a genealogy of all things, and see wondrous things. We can see here, Lord, that this may very well have been the very means that you kept truth going without getting distorted by giving long ages to people. But we also were reminded that people die. We see it in our own generation. And yet, Lord, we also see when times are dark and difficulty, you have a way of reviving things because you promised, Lord Jesus, you would build your church. You did. You do. We believe it. Lord, I pray for, I want to pray, Lord, for every parent in this room. That is, their hearts are breaking over their children. They've, they've done a good job of passing down their sin to their kids, as we all have. But their hearts are broken because their son or their daughter does not love you, has not called upon you, and is certainly not walking with you. Dear friend, if that's you, I just right now, I just pray a blessing upon you right now, asking God to comfort your heart, to remind you that he is still on the throne. He's not going anywhere. He still rules in this world. He'll he'll rule in your life. Trust him. Believe him. No matter how much it breaks your heart. And God, I cry out with these parents on behalf of their children. I, we call upon you in desperation to save those children. Turn their hearts to yourself. And cause them to walk in your ways. I pray for those, Lord, who have never called upon you right now. If that's you, dear friend, you, you've never had that time. You've been religious, but you're lost. You're not righteous. And you would acknowledge that today. You would say, God, I, I lay aside all vestiges of spirituality that are not real, and I just, I humble my heart, and I believe on the Lord Jesus right now. If that's your heart's desire, just tell him that he's listening. And call upon him as a true worshiper. And then I pray, Lord, for those who are true worshipers who struggle in their walk. They've learned today, Lord, that this isn't just a wimpy kind of a thing, but there's intimacy and there's intensity. And they would make a decision right now. God, I will follow you. I will follow the Lord Jesus. I'm deciding right here, right now, and forever. If that's your heart, then tell God that. And may he hear you, change you, And revive your people, dear God, we pray in Jesus' name.